Hey guys. I've, I've been asked like a hundred times today and I don't know the question, but I don't know the answer to the question, but I, don't, I honestly don't think I've ever been to the great state of Alabama in my life. I've been to like six different sub-Saharan African countries and I've hung out in Kabul before, but I don't think I've ever been to Alabama. It's awesome here. Crazy. Such culture. Look at this place. When you guys were at lunch, I flew the drone in here. Terrible idea. <laughs> um, so I had a little bit of a, I had a talk prepared for this event today. And then um, Kelly just interviewed me. Kelly, are you still in this room? Hope not. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to call you out. And she kind of threw off my whole talk. Thanks, Kelly. And, <laughs> and it kind of made me skew my talk. So I have... Uh, I want to take it in a little bit of a different direction. Compliments of Kelly. Thanks again, Kelly. Um, but I want to really zero in on one thing. And it's something that I seldom get to talk about because typically when I'm speaking with, when I get these opportunities to speak with big groups, it's, it's a slightly more diversified group. Sometimes it's students with different aspirations. But this is a real entrepreneur audience here. So I want to really zero in my talk and share with you something that is more, more pointed, more direct than I could maybe on the YouTube channel, on the vlog, or anything like that, because I feel like we all kind of speak the same language. So why not just, why not just keep it in that vernacular for now? Um, but this started with, with Kelly asking me uh, kind of what it means to be an entrepreneur, or what it was like for me to be here preparing to speak to an entire room full of, of people who are curious about or who are entrepreneurs because my entrepreneurial path in my career has been pretty, um, pretty far from, from what is typical. And when she asked me that or when she brought that up, I responded to her by saying how I define what it means to be an entrepreneur is simply as when you start with an idea and then starting with nothing more than that idea, you end up with something that looks like success. And I think that's a pretty abstract, a pretty sweeping definition of what it means to be an entrepreneur. I think it's a definition you could apply to so many different things, but I think that's a definition that is one that's much more optimistic and much more, um, much more maybe inspiring, something that's much more palatable for, for people than perhaps the Mark Zuckerberg definition of, or, or Elon Musk's definition of what it means to be an entrepreneur. So it's through that lens that I want to walk you guys through my life as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, when I, when I left Connecticut because my baby mama dumped me, um, and I just, baby mama is in fact a completely politically correct term. It is an accurate term. Baby mama is just, I mean, is there more fair way to characterize? Okay, when my baby mom, glad we're all, Glad we're all aligned on that one. When my baby mama dumped me and I was like, fuck this, <laughs> politically correct. Um, and, I, and I like bailed and I was like, I'm, I'm going for it. I'm gonna reach for the stars because my heart's broken. I don't know what else to do. And I moved to New York City. The, the, the catalyst for that, the thing that was like, I can do this or I'm going to do this was nothing more than an idea. 
It was this idea that I could be something more than a guy who works in the back of the kitchen doing the very worst responsibility that, that exists in a kitchen, which is like, if you're taking out an industrial size plastic garbage bag from a restaurant garbage can, that's one of those thick, heavy black ones, and it's so heavy you have to lean forward a little bit, and then as you're walking out the door, the bottom of the bag punctures just enough to flood out all the seafood restaurant garbage juice into the back of your shoes. So that was my job. And the, the catalyst to walk away from that was an idea. It was just this idea. And behind that idea was a whole bunch of passion and all these other intangibles. But it was an idea. And it was an idea that I believed in. I don't know if it was enough that I would be successful, but it was enough for me to make that first step. It was enough for me to go from zero to one. And that first step for me was moving to New York City. And you know, there was a number of really terrible uh, jobs that I took and things that I did in New York that were awful, like being a bike messenger. Don't ever do that, no matter how cool it looks in the movies. Being a bike messenger is a terrible, terrible job. Um, my first, after my first week of being a bike messenger, I literally had a net loss of income because the minutes on my cell phone cost more than my paycheck was. So at the end of working 50 hours in a week, it cost me like $70 to do that job. Terrible job. But like about two years after I moved to New York City, it was maybe even a little bit less time than that, I got a really real paid gig by a fancy person who was smart and picked me and thought my brother and I were the right people to do this job and he paid us real money to make a birthday video. But it was, it was an exchange. It was like, here's money that I can live off of and all you give me in return is you make me a movie. This thing that I'd been paying to do my whole life. That was my first taste of success. That was in itself sort of a micro, uh, uh, like a microcosm, a little bubble of what it meant to be an entrepreneur. And I don't think that's how anyone would characterize what it means to be an entrepreneur. But I had this idea, this idea that was enough of a kick in the ass for me to actually chase it down. And the first manifestation of success was me getting the opportunity to make a birthday video. Um, and I think if you'd asked me that, I wouldn't have been able to characterize that as one, really being successful, or two, what it meant to chase down a dream, turn it into something, and, and call that being an entrepreneur. But that's exactly what it was. I look back in retrospect, and that's what I see. And it, it was with that thread that I, I think I could connect every sort of success, every high point and every failure and low point in my career to where I am now is a single idea or, or an amalgam of ideas that, that was fueled enough passion in me for me to actually want to chase it down and do it. And it's funny, I just posted uh, a video like a couple days ago where I went and hang out with, with my wife Candace and like I got to sort of see her burgeoning new company that is Finding Success. And I ended the video by saying like how often in life does somebody, a loved one, a friend, an enemy, a coworker, somebody at the water bubbler, somebody you like, somebody you dislike, bring up an idea or a thought for what they'd love to do. Wouldn't it be crazy if, why hasn't somebody invented, we should make an app that does, you know what would be cool? Someday I want to start a restaurant. Like how often do you hear that? And then how often is action taken? Because that is the hardest step. That zero to one is the hardest step. And, and it's when I look back that I see the decision to take that first step as it, always the foundation for every sort of success that I've had in my career. And, and with that, you know, my HBO show is something that I like to talk about a lot because it makes me seem like a big deal. <laughs> it's a huge deal, come on. <laughs> um, 
Um, I mean, it, the irony is like when I say now that I have a YouTube channel, it's like I'm, I'm just like every other 13-year-old in, in the world. But when I say I had an HBO show, it's like a big deal, but like nobody watched the HBO show. And you guys probably have all seen one of my YouTube videos, so. Okay, when I had the HBO show, like that's a big glamorous thing that when people talk about and when like my agent emails to the folks at Sloss Tech um, for, for my accolades, it looks really bright and glamorous on there. But if you look at that, again, if you look at that through the lens of what it means to be an entrepreneur, what was the idea that, that led to that, it was, it was literally like a really kind of uninteresting opportunity. And we worked with this guy who was a very smart guy and he sort of had a public access show. And he came to my brother and me and he was like, can we do something cool together, I like your videos? And we were like, sure. And he's like, I'd like to hire you to make some videos for the public access channel because we're opening one in Colorado. And I was like, wow, okay, fantastic. You can count on us to make you some public access videos for your public access channel in Colorado. What's the budget? <laughs> and the budget that we agreed on was like just enough to fly us out there and put us up in a two-star hotel and, and then flies back and sort of feed us in between. And we agreed to it because it was an opportunity. And uh, I remember the last thing he said to us was he was like, just, just don't screw this up, man. Just please make this respectable. And we're like, you can count on us. You can count on us. So what we did is we blew the entire budget buying a 1986 Ford Econoline E350 van. And then we put two Chinese-made, uh, ordered out of a catalog, mini bikes, like in the back of that van. And instead of flying out to Colorado to make the videos, we drove from New York City to Colorado because all we knew about Aspen, Colorado was what we learned in the film Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> so we thought we would just remake that movie. Um, and then we painted on the side of our van, respectability tour. Um, and we made it. And it was like the most preposterous thing I've ever seen and done. It really didn't make any sense. We don't know how to make a long movie. So we just made like 23 minute movies and pieced them all together and handed that in. And when he saw it, he was like, this is fantastic. What else can we do together? And we were kind of like, I don't know, nobody's ever presented that opportunity before. And he was like, well, let me know what you think. So I remember like, I went back and I like, did some math and I added up all of our bills for my brother and me. And then I added like 20% on the end of that. And I was like, okay, this is what it costs us to live. Let's just see times 12 equals X. And I went back to him and I was like, we need this much money. And in exchange, we will make a bunch of videos. And I, re I remember he was like, he was like, uh, yeah, I was thinking like a feature like documentary or something. And we were like, mm-hmm. And he was just kind of like, okay. And that moment, like, uh, you know, that moment was such a huge moment, which was just that, like someone of importance who didn't really know much about me, really believing in me and supporting that with actual action. And what we ended up doing was exactly what we said. My brother and I just started making all these little videos. And then after kind of like a month, he'd come and visit us and we'd show him all these little videos and he'd be like, I don't know what this is, but keep going. And then after three months, we had a lot. And he was like, this is too much. So we pushed them all together into like 20 minute videos. And he was like, this is starting to make sense. Let me bring over some important friends. And he brought some important friends by 
And uh, I remember a guy named Doug Lyman who directed a couple of movies, but one of the movies he directed was The Bourne Identity. Um, he's a huge like movie director guy, big deal. I came over and he was like, put like a title sequence at the beginning and one at the end. And we we're like, okay. And he was like, yeah, now it's a TV show. And we we're like, okay. And we finished that TV. We worked for a year on it and we had eight gigantic chunks of content. And then we went around and we showed it to people. And a lot of the people we showed it to, like um, I'll call them out by name, like the History Channel and I think AMC and a couple of other, like, hey guys, this is really cool. If nobody else wants it, let us know. We'll put it on our website. Uh -huh. Cool, thanks. <laughs> and, and we showed it to HBO and they were, they were like, I like this. I'm very interested. Now they're like, what the, f what does that mean? And then they like made us an offer of millions of dollars to buy this show, and then they bought it, and it became this huge deal. Now, understanding that I, I left a lot of the gory stories out of that, a lot of the ugly details of what that entire process looked like out, but that ends up being, 10 years later, is just sort of a footnote in my bio. I had a show on HBO that I wrote and directed and produced. There was a success at the end of the tunnel that started with something that was nothing more than a small idea. And uh, I think to me that's what really what it really means to be an entrepreneur and as I look back and I see this pattern throughout my own experiences um, you know having lived in this space now for 20 years trying to find success here having no fucking idea what I'm doing and I can't underscore that enough I have no idea what I'm doing I don't know what I'm doing right now <laughs> I'm not kidding I never have any idea what I'm doing because the truth is like to succeed, to exist in this world of being an entrepreneur, it means there is, by definition, there's no instruction manual. If any of you out there are trying to do something, trying to build something, or trying to follow some prescription that somebody else defined, you failed. You have already failed. You will not succeed. You can write that down. You will not succeed. If there are 10,000 sheep with white fur, fur, what does sheep have? Wool? What's on the back of a sheep? 10,000 white woolen sheep going that way. And you're like, wow, yeah, I want to succeed. Let me jump in line with these sheep. You're like, wait, how come nobody's noticing me? Like, nobody's going to notice you. You got to be the one that steps out. You got to be the wolf that runs in the opposite direction. And that's what it takes. It, it's, it's embracing the idea that you have to define it for yourself. And I, I, I consider myself very lucky. I'm very, very lucky because because I had a fucked up childhood and because my parents got like a really nasty divorce when I was a teenager and I didn't know how to react so I, 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 I acted out and got thrown out of high school and then got a girl pregnant and ran away from home and I'm lucky that I only have a 10th grade education and I'm lucky that I like know what it means to try to raise a baby on welfare and not being able to afford diapers or not having a place to stay when you have a two-year-old kid. I'm lucky to have had those experiences because those experiences make me not give a shit about the fact that I don't know what to do. Instead, I just keep going. That is a virtue. And when I look at my like privileged, fucking trust fund, good-looking, rich, New York City socialite friends, I pity them. I feel terrible for them. I'm like, man, I feel so sorry for you that you, would, that you inherited $12 million on your 18th birthday. <laughs> that fucking sucks. And I'm not kidding when I say that to them. They will never have that appetite. They will never have that hunger to get out there and chase it down. Um, 
You know, another thing we talked about backstage was like this idea that, and this is a tough one, you have to think about this one. It took me probably six months to actually understand what this means, but in life, you can have, especially everybody in this room, I mean, if you're healthy enough to figure out how to get in here and healthy enough to get a ticket and you are in the United States of America, like, you got a huge leg up on the rest of the planet already, but in life, you can always get whatever you want. You just can't want whatever you want. And what that means is it's like, if you truly want something, like I did, because I didn't have a choice, it was like, what, continue to like, wait for my free diapers and milk to show up on the first of every month? Like, that's not a comfortable place to be. The bottom is a really shitty place to wake up every day. I genuinely wanted it. I wanted more out of life. I wanted more out of my career. I was sick of like, the, the looks that my parents, my friends' parents would give me because I'm the loser that they didn't want their kids to hang out with. I really fucking wanted it. And when you want it that bad, it's easy to go out there and chase it down. It's not easy to succeed, but it's easy to chase it down. But you can't, you can't want whatever you want. And those trust fund kids, and I don't mean to pick on them, I know some very successful trust fund kids, but I, people who have never had that hunger, people who, who you know, maybe God wasn't so angry when they woke up and didn't curse them with ambition. Those people, they can say they want it and they can say they have this tribe, but it's not there. It's not there. And that's not such a bad thing either. But if you are one of those people, if you're one of those people who was cursed with the burden of ambition and you have to embrace what you don't know and you have to leverage the power and the passion because that is the only way to get there. Because the roads that I think most of you, and certainly that I am on, there is no map to follow. There's no prescription to follow. By virtue of, of being an entrepreneur, by the virtue of having nothing but an idea that's fueled by passion, you're seeking success. By very definition, you have to define your own path. Otherwise, you're one of those sheep headed that way and nobody's gonna notice you. Um, so with that, bringing that back to my own career, it's, it's you know, my, my brother and I had this kind of after the HBO show wasn't a good process. They bought our show, they sat on it for two years. It was very frustrating because for the first time in my life I had money and I felt like I didn't have to work. The hunger was sort of satiated. I was well fed, both literally and figuratively. I mean literally, like I used to buy like the fancy sandwiches from the deli across the street every single day. <laughs> you know what it's like to be able to afford a bacon, egg and cheese sandwich seven days a week? That is wealth. And for like two years, I didn't do much. And I had all my friends patting on the back, congrats on your sale, man, this is a huge deal. I read about you in Variety, and I was like, yes, you did. But I wasn't making anything. And my brother and I stopped working together, and you know, he wanted to focus on his art, and I wanted to try to build a new business, and we went and he's and on the opposite end of that, the HBO show premiered, and you know, I had a successful film that also premiered. And I had all this kind of Hollywood attention that literally manifested. I can remember the day, it's vivid. But I was like, we just left the Independent Spirit Awards. The very next day was the Oscars. So all the movie stars in the world were in, were in Hollywood. They were in Los Angeles. And I just won an Independent Spirit Award. I just won like the biggest award you could get for independent film. And I like, when you win one of those, you don't put it down. You like carry it around. <laughs> And I was like 29 or whatever, I'm not putting the fucking thing down. I'm like, no, you know what it took to get this? Like, I was just walking. And I remember like walking past the room and this was like at the peak of Mad Men. And I saw John Hamm in there and I was like, and the minute we caught eye contact, I was like, oh my God, he's so good looking. And I kept walking by. And he was like, hey, 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 Casey. 
come in here. And I went in there, and I'm chit-chatting with him. I'm like, why is he being so nice to me? And then I was like, oh, that's not a movie producer. He probably wants to be in my next movie. And I was like, wow, this is it. This is it. That was like one of 50 stories from that day. I also didn't have a ride home, and I hitchhiked, and a limo picked me up, and it was like the cast of The Office. <laughs> I'm nuts. I'm on the plane flying home, listening to, okay, on the last, last, <laughs> um, last digression. I'm on, I go to the airport. Now, if you've ever seen the, you should Google it, but not now, don't look down. Don't look away from me, eye contact. If you've ever seen what the award looks like for an Independent Spirit Award, it's sort of like, if you can imagine an Oscar, but instead of shiny gold, it's this gross bronze. And instead of it being a sleek, sort of almost phallic-looking shape, it's this like angel of death with gigantic wings. Now, those wings are made out of bronze or brass or the hell metal they use. And they're so sharp, you could shave with it. And this thing's kind of big, and it's heavy. You could easily bludgeon someone with it. You could most likely rob a bank with this award. It is such an aggressive weapon. And I show up at the airport, naturally with it in my left hand, walking through the airport like this, and it sets off every alarm. And I remember like the TSA looking at it being like, There's n this is a weapon, you cannot, and I was like, I was like, come on. And they're like, you can't, you can't. And I was like, get, get the boss or something, I'm not, I'm not, so they disappear, I'm like waiting there holding my thing. And then this guy comes out of the back, and he's got like, not the thing around his neck, he's got the one that clips on right here, and he has like a slightly nicer TSA outfit. And this is how I see him coming, across the airport. <laughs> and he gets to me and he's like, he's like, I saw you on TV yesterday, man, it's gr congratulate, great to meet you. And I was like, I was like, thanks. They said, he's like, oh, just go ahead, just go ahead. <laughs> and I was like, are you fucking kidding? This is how the TSA works? So I'm on the airplane, and you know that thing when you're on an airplane or on a bus or in the backseat of a car, and you have your headphones on and you listen to like sad music, like I think I was probably listening to OK Computer, and like you just get all these weird and fucked up emotions. You're like, what the hell's wrong with me right now? What's happening to me? Okay, that happened to me. And it was like, it was like, I was like, what, what's good? And I realized that like, it was a true feeling of emptiness. Like, I felt hollow. And it was because, like, for tears, I hadn't made anything. And this moment, this day, this crescendo of success in this world that I worked so hard to kick in the door of, and this crescendo of success, it wasn't about making or creating the thing that I love. It wasn't about that, that passion-fueled idea. It was about sort of this, like, masturbatory patting one another on the back and having John Hamm make deep eye contact with me. <laughs> and I just felt empty. And that was when I went back to New York City and I kind of called my agent and I was like, I don't want to do it. I don't want no more TV. I don't want to see any more scripts. I don't want to take any more of these fucking meetings that are a waste of my time and theirs. I'm just going to make YouTube videos. And now 2010, YouTube was a place for like cats and parody videos and like freebooted Michael Jordan highlight reels. It was not a place where there was even a, a community, let alone the word creator, uh, applying to it at all. And my agent thought it was a bad, everyone thought it was a bad idea. And I put my head down and that's where I really focused. And again, there I was, like trying to do something, I wasn't sure what it was, but it was an idea that was fueled by passion. I knew there was maybe some version of success, but I had no idea what I was doing and no idea how it might take me there. And, and you know, 
I really found my footing two years, three years in, and I built this big company around it, a production company around it. I was making a good living. I was really excited, and I found something. Um, and then an opportunity came my way. And it wasn't an incremental opportunity. It was an opportunity that really shook things up. It was an opportunity that I would describe as, and I fucking hate this word, disruptive. Have like your other speakers been using that word today? If they have, I'm not picking on them, but come on. Disruptive. We're disrupting the industry. And what it was, it was an invitation to go to MIT. And that, what that meant was it was, a, it was actually a, a fellowship that was a, a joint fellowship that was sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation, that was organized by the Sundance Institute and was hosted by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Media Lab. And they selected me. Um, now, like, you know, despite arrogance and ego and all of that stuff. Like, I, I will always harbor tremendous insecurities about being a high school dropout. So the idea of going to MIT was like the perfect fuck you. <laughs> um, so I was really excited about it. And, but what it did mean was really literally shutting down my company. And I wasn't sure what that meant. I wasn't sure what that might yield. But I knew that, that this was something that, again, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where it was taking me. I knew it was something that felt fresh and felt like I needed to do. And I went there and I learned so much at, at MIT and that's a whole nother talk, but when I got back was, uh, when I got back was when I, I started Beam and the ambition to start Beam was because I was surrounded by the smartest people on planet Earth inside of the MIT Media Lab. We're talking post-grad students from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology literally solving the world's problems. I shared a lab with a guy who had lost both legs while climbing a mountain and built robotic legs that he could run marathons and dance on. Like, these are the geniuses I'm surrounded by. So I'm like, head down in the iMovie, editing videos all day in the media lab. But I'm soaking it up, soaking it up. And I went back and I literally read a book about a tech startup and I was like, I, I want to tackle this entrepreneur thing in the very literal form. And again, there, there was this idea and there was passion behind that idea because it seemed exciting and fresh, something I wanted to do. And I knew what a version of success looked like. It's when, how much did they pay for WhatsApp? $18 billion? Success is when Mark Zuckerberg writes you a check for $18 billion. And I was like, okay, here's an idea, and I just have to get here. How hard could that be? Um, and, I, and I tackled that, and I, I went at that, and I, I still, to start a technology company, I've never written a line of code in my life. I've still never written a line of code in my life. But this, to me, was something that I was wildly curious about. And if there's one thing I learned about like the 500 books I read about every startup that I could find, was that there was something in common for all of them. And that was that they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know where it might go. Instagram was a, an app that was meant to share your location with friends, and nobody liked it. But they did like how you could post pictures on there. And Twitter started as a company called IDEO, which was like a blogging site. They didn't know what the hell they were doing, but they tripped and they found this trajectory. And that idea, that idea of literally almost an institutionalized embracing of not knowing what to do is what excited me about starting a technology company. And I would say very specifically, very acutely, with no equivocation, when we started that company, when I started that company, I had no idea what I was doing or where it might go. And I could have never predicted the outcome that we had, but it was, it, it was Beam. It was starting that company that led me to starting the vlog, which um, 
in, in some way or another brought all of you here today. It was like there was no way to kind of project or predict rather the path that that one decision would take me on. So uh, that's my big takeaway for today. I'm, I'm not quite done talking yet, but that's the big takeaway for today is that when I sit back and I look at the history, which has been a tumultuous one of my own career and my, my life as an adult, which started at age 14, um, there is a common through line. There's a common narrative to every single success and every failure. I don't like to talk about those because I only have like 40 minutes or whatever and I'm like, we're talking about my failures. So they're like, why'd they pay that guy to come here? I have my own fucking problems. Um, every success follows that single line, which is embracing the unknown, believing in that idea, and just stopping at nothing to find success, even though the manifestation of that success is never, ever what you'd imagined. The opportunity to take a year and do nothing but make fun videos, I could have never told you would have yielded an HBO series. The idea of making a birthday video, I would have never told you would have yielded a career in the fine art world and certainly like getting pissed off and making a three-minute video about uh, my iPod when I was 22 years old because I was angry. I would have never guessed that, that would have taken me where it took me and I certainly wouldn't have guessed that shutting down my successful, first time I built something successful really on my own which was my production company, shutting that down to go to MIT, a place I had no place to be, I had the idea that that might yield me starting a technology company I could have never imagined. But you start with this idea that's fueled by passion, you put your head down and you keep running. Um, now because I'm always insecure about my own ability to speak and get people to say that I did a good job when I walk off the stage, I like to end with a movie. Because um, the movies I spend a lot of time on, I can like, make sure they're good, unlike this, which is just me guessing, hoping, fucking <laughs> reaching right now. A little story. So, I, the success of that production company that, that, that existed before I went to MIT was largely around one single movie and that was Make It Count and the and the origin story of Make It Count was just that, like I wanted to just work with companies I didn't want to make TV commercials anymore and I had some opportunities to do that and the best opportunity I had was Nike was like we love your short films do some short films for us and I did some and they were successful and in the end I did this one video where I like stole the whole budget and spent the budget running around the world on this crazy trip and then handed them in this video that had no Nike products in it. You could just see that I was wearing a Patagonia shirt in every single shot. My bad Nike. And how did I not notice? But that video was an unbelievable runaway success. And it introduced this whole wave of like inspirational content and this motivational content. And and it was with that success that I was able to really shoot my company out of a, a rocket ship. The trouble was, every time somebody would come to me, they would say, we'd love for you to do for us what you just did for Nike. And it's like, the whole reason why it worked is because it was something that had never been done. I can't keep doing this. It doesn't work. And the video that I want to I show, I want to end this talk with, is exactly that example. And this was sort of the last real video that I made before I went to MIT. But my assignment with this was literally getting a phone call saying, hey, we've got this inspirational movie coming out. We want you to make an inspirational video for it, just like you did for Nike. And I literally, like, uh, in the video, you see me read the response to them. But it was like, I don't want to do it, but if you give me all the money, I'll do something else. 
And they kind of agreed to it. And I like to show this video for a lot of reasons, but this video is a very real four and a half minute example of having an idea that was fueled by passion, aiming for something that was success, but having no clue what would happen in between. No idea what would happen in between. Um, so just kind of housekeeping, we're gonna play this video now, it's like four or five minutes long, and then after that I think we're gonna do a big fat Q&A, right? Yeah, okay. All right, so let's, let's watch this movie. I'm not gonna sit here, I'm gonna sit over there, but I'm not leaving, I just don't wanna sit here because then you're gonna like stare at me and see, and then I'm just gonna go sit over there. Okay, make it loud. How does this Q&A work? Do I just sit here? Do, how do I do my Q&A? I, I go back there? No, I stay here. People are gonna line up. Does, does anybody have any questions? Okay, thanks everybody for coming. First of all, Casey, welcome to Alabama. Thank you, good to be here. I appreciate it. Remember, I'm married to a Texan. Oh, yeah. Okay, so first of all, my thing is, went to school at the University of Alabama, going out there now, work there, so we're taught the correct way to shoot, the correct way to introduce yourself to someone. Um, you did things so differently, so I'm just kind of like, do you value more your advice to people who go through four-year college as compared to you? Sure, so I, I get it. I, um, I have a very uh, universal response to that, which is that the more tools you can have in your toolbox, the more powerful you are. And what that means is like, you know how to use the camera right, that's a tool. It doesn't mean you have to use it, but that's a tool. You get four years of education, I'm sure you took some shit classes you don't want to take, maybe your parents forced you to take or you needed your credits to graduate. Those are tools, you never know when you're going to need them. My favorite example of this is my sister when she was in college, she worked at Applebee's or Chili's or one of those fucking microwave barbecue rib places. <laughs> and she hated the job. And then when she got her first real job at a huge marketing company, the CEO was giving a talk to like all 3,000 employees. And he was like, we just brought on Chili's as our new client. Does anyone here have any experience with the company? And she was the one person. At that moment, she had to reach into her toolbox and raise her hand. She had to pull that tool out. And because of that, she had a one-on-one -on -one with the CEO, which led to bigger things. So if, you have, if I had had the opportunity to go to college, I would have embraced it. If I had the opportunity to be taught how to use that camera properly, and you could teach me, I would, I would embrace it because you never know when you're going to need to lean on these tools. But education is a shortcut to what is otherwise learned from experience, and you should embrace that. I wish I got to go to college. Thank you. Oh, wait, before we go to the next question, I do have one request, which the right side of the audience is not going to love, and that's that the questions go boy, girl, boy, girl. Which means the next question is coming from this young lady right here. I'm just kidding. He has a beard. <laughs> Huge beard. So, yeah. so um, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. Truly inspirational. Uh, loved it. Um, so one time I was watching one of your videos, and something you, you showed resonated with me. And I told my wife, I said, if I ever meet this guy, I'm going to ask him about it. And, uh, you showed the 30 on your wrist. Please tell me that's 
I mean, it's like six inches off. It's more on the forearm, yeah, but but not far. Not yeah, yeah. We're on the. We're talking so about the same thing here. She said something along the lines of, "I put, I got this tattooed on when I was thirty. I didn't think I was going to make it here." Can you kind of expound? Yeah. Um, there's a movie I've written about this that I haven't made, but it's like, there's a point in your life. We're all old here. There's no kids. Okay, there's some kids here, but <laughs> you guys remember that thing, I'm talking to the adults in this room, that thing when you thought about life and all you saw was what was in front of you, like all you could see was your future, and like it was, possibilities were endless, everything was in front of you, and what was behind you was just sort of the cost, the price of entry. And I think for me, I embraced that and I lived that so hard because the really formative years when the girl who asked the question before was in college, those really formative years of being a teenager into early adulthood, for me, were so serious, were so consequential, were about raising a baby and having no money and finding life, that I was forced to really live in this fantastical vision of the future. And when you're 17 years old, 30 seems impossibly far away. And when you're 17 years old and you're like looking at a, your newborn baby's face, the idea of 30 seems impossibly far away. And I, it sounds crazy for me to say now because I'm like a marginally responsible adult with a real job and stuff, but at age like you know, 17 through 25, the idea that at some point in time I would have to face adulthood and I would actually be an adult, that I would actually be, I don't know why, I, I always attach that to the age of 30, it seemed unfathomable, inf incomprehensible. To me, it just never made sense. Um, and when I turned 30, it was really like, I forced myself to stop at that moment and really reflect back on when that's where my brain was for so many years. And then proceed to tattoo that number on my arm so I would not forget that moment. When I entered the place where I am now, which I think most of us in this room are, where when I think about the totality of life, I think about my past just as much as I think about my future. Does that make sense? Who, where's the, yeah, that's sort of, right? Something, that's something. Um, do we have a question from a lady? Yes, we do. Oh, hey, hi. Hi, okay, before I ask a question, I just want to say something really quick. Um, I really look up to you, and eight months ago, my older sister died, and it's been like a really, really awful time, but your videos have helped me so much, and they've kept me going, and I know you're no stranger to hardship, but seeing you come out on top of the things life has thrown at you has made me feel like I can too, and that means a lot to me. So I just wanted to thank you. Sorry, thank you. Thank you for being generous and sharing that, and um, I don't think I've ever had to deal with anything like that. <laughs> I don't, I won't. let's be straight here. Um, but. Did you? Yeah, okay, um, so I was just curious um, what changes you foresee in social media that will affect the way you market your content? Well, I really didn't see that big of a pivot coming there. <laughs> That's like, somebody needs to buy futures on this girl. She's going places. Um, well, I wouldn't have, uh, thank you for sharing. What the hell did you just ask me? Sorry, I'm still thinking about your sister and... Well, I, I think that's a, one, that's a, that's a really advanced question. God. Um, it's been a long time thinking about it. Okay, okay, it's impressive. You did. Mission accomplished. Thank you for asking. Next question. Um, 
No, I say that because I think to really understand some concepts that could answer that question means that you, you immediately have a leg up. Because if you can even have a hypothesis as to where things are headed in that space, the most valuable space in all of marketing, then you can leverage that understanding and you have an unfair competitive advantage that you can turn into your advantage that you can build, that you can build careers or businesses off of. And my biggest guess, and I don't think that this is that much of a reach, I think that video will become immediate, not just video, but it will become completely homogenized. Meaning the idea is that right now, if you want to watch House of Cards, it's connected to this thing called Netflix, and we want to watch Game of Thrones on, is it Saturday or Sunday? Does anybody know? Sunday. Sunday? Sunday. Thank you. <laughs> if we want to see how Game of Thrones, we will watch HBO. And if we want to see news, we will watch Fox News or CNN. And if we want to see vloggers, we will watch YouTube. Right now, they're still somewhat attached to these, these distribution outlets. And I think in the future, we're just going to have these, these devices that we now have that just keep getting better and better that look like this. And we're not going to give a shit, and we're not going to know, and we're not going to care where it's coming from. We're just going to know how to consume it. And when I look at kids, when I look at, I mean, even Owen now is 19, he's a little old, but when I look at younger kids, I don't see them paying attention to the distribution medium at all. I just see them seeing this is a vehicle to that content. So with that, I think that the outlets themselves, like the Viacoms and the old media companies, I think they better pick up the fucking pace in figuring it out. And I would also say the same about the YouTubes of the world. Like if, if, they, don't, if they don't figure out what the next step is, somebody else is going to. And I not to get too detailed or nuanced here, but I think there's just going to be like this sort of broad, decentralized, um, truly egalitarian distribution medium for everything social and everything media that's going to level the playing field on communication globally. I'm trying to figure out how I can find a place in helping shape that and be a part of that for my own self-serving reasons and altruistic reasons. But I think to sort of understand that from a conceptual perspective is to have a gigantic leg up on everybody else who's looking at what's happening today. Is that complex enough? You want me to go deeper? Because I can start talking about blockchain if you want. Thank you for being so generous and sharing with all of us. You should like, you should, somebody should, we should, you and I should stay in touch. Good luck topping that one. Uh, hi Casey, I watched your videos probably about a year ago, so I certainly hooked on them. And, uh, I remember just immediately just getting entrenched in these videos. I thought they were so neat, and at the same time, I was like, this guy's crazy. He's making content every day. I don't know how he's doing this. And I guess my question is, whenever you kind of go through that process of making your videos, is it more of a, you just wake up in the morning sometimes, you're like, I'm gonna make something about this, or is it kind of a planned effort? Sure. Um, let me unpack that a little bit. The first, the, the more practical, like when I was making video every single day for my channel, I was always I would have a, an inkling of an idea in the morning, um, and then it would be throughout the execution, throughout the day of capturing, that I would sort of find that story, and then it was in the edit process that I'd figure out how to share that story. And when you're doing it every day, it's pretty easy to find a formula in there. Um, but what drove me to turn around that amount of stuff was just like a real fixation. It was the same thing. It was like an idea driven by a passion, knowing that it was going to take me somewhere, not sure, not sure where. And it was like that was so, at the peak of, of the Daily Show, of the Daily Vlog, that was so strong that nothing could interrupt that. Like I remember making a video called, I don't know what it's called, like Hangovers or, Overs or the Worst or something, and literally Candace and I like 
I had a babysitter who slept over and it was the first time we had partied since we had the baby and we were out like really just tying one on and we like woke up at two in the afternoon the next day just sick and like deathly and somehow I made a vlog that day. And like that was the degree of obsessed that I was with this self-imposed challenge of making something every day. Um, and that's just sort of faded, you know, like for now it's, I'm really focused on what we're doing at Beam. I'm still super excited about making YouTube videos and I do them when I get a chance. For some reason, like the last couple months, I've just been, I've been more obsessed with running than I've ever been before and I'm running like 80 miles a week and I can't stop running. I, want, I wish I was running right now instead of talking to you right now. I really <laughs> wish I was running. Um, but I think that like, I'm, I, I thank my lucky stars every day that I've never been one who's interested in drugs or alcohol or anything really bad because I just, I am someone who's always leveraged and really embraced um, a kind of obsessiveness. So it was that obsessiveness that fueled the daily um, production. And then the daily production was what dovetailed with kind of what I described before and, and how I was able to yield the, the new episodes every day. Thank you. Did you keep the baby goat? Those baby goats <laughs> came from Long Island where there was a woman who raised this baby goat. She was lovely and she was very protective of them. Cutest thing ever. We had two baby goats the other day for Candace's photo shoot. And if you, they were like six weeks old and they're the cutest goats you've ever seen. And when you would separate the two, because they're a brother and sister, they'd start crying. <sighs> no, we had to give them, it was like, they were, the, those goats, it was a photo shoot for my wife's clothing company, a jewelry company. And her, it's called Billy, so she got Billy goats to be in it. And then she had these beautiful models that were professional models. The models got paid less per hour than the baby goats. <laughs> That is completely true and really upsetting. Sir, you're going to have to switch places with the young lady behind you because I, I'm sorry, there's a strict mandate here that we have to maintain a boy girl, boy girl. Oh, I see what's happening because then the whole pattern's thrown off. Oh, okay, unless you want to both speak at the same time. You know, you know what? Yeah, no, let's just keep it. Okay, okay, okay. No, go ahead. Sorry, now you're on the spot. What's your name? What's your name? What's your uh, name? My name is Jillian. Everyone, Jillian. Okay. Candace says when she sees that, it stresses her out. <laughs> I, I find it intimidating. <laughs> me, me too. I, I can tell you my wrist is like, okay. I, I yeah, don't sleep. Work harder. <laughs> so, but my question is, like, you talk a lot about passion in your videos and how you found your passion, but what advice would you give to someone who hasn't found their passion? Well, I, I think that passion is like an innate, I don't know what is passion, it's an emotion maybe. And I think what you're asking is like, someone who hasn't found what they should attach it to. And what I mean by that is like when I was a teenager and I wanted to make movies, I really liked Tim Burton was my favorite and I wanted to make Edward Scissorhands. And I never did that. I never made Edward Scissorhands. Um, and certainly I, I could have never predicted that like making eight minute videos for YouTube on my computer would be how my passion would manifest itself. So my advice to people who are passionate and have passion but don't know how to uh, don't know how, to, how it should manifest or how to sublimate that emotion is to just start doing and start doing things. My mother, who will never see this because she doesn't know how to work the internet, um, is someone who has nothing but raw passion and has never 
directed it. Um, she started a million things and finished zero in her entire life. Uh, and I learned a lot from that. Um, so I always say, find something and don't stop doing it until you're good at it. And you can quit when you're good, because if you've gotten good and you quit, it means it wasn't right for you. But if you never get good and you quit, it just means you're a quitter and you gave up. So just do. Um, my first four years of making videos were terrible. And then I sort of found something that was good. And it, my passion turned into to a career. Does that make sense? Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, Thank good. You. Thank you for your question. Yeah, that's a smart, I like where that's headed, but then you're going to get, okay, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, great speech. Uh, I actually like that you went that direction, because I actually answered the original question I was going to ask, so I'll go a different direction with my question. Uh, you made a film, My Kid and Me, which I have a one-year-old at home, and sometimes when things get moving really fast, that movie helps kind of slow everything down. Um, how do you do that, unless you watch that movie too, but... That's probably the hardest thing in the world. I can say that I'm much better at it now than I was with Owen. Um, and just like I'm a very lucky person in that Owen is a much, much, much more forgiving, compassionate person than my two-year-old who's just a total maniac and completely unforgiving and has no time for anyone's shit. Um, <laughs> So I do like I credit Owen with so with being like you know just the most generous kid ever when I was really distracted as a dad, um, but now I have the opportunity of retrospect. Like Candace, when she says I want to have another kid, I jokingly seriously say to her, let's wait 16 years because 18 years between kids feels like the perfect gap, um, because I was able to learn so much from from Owen. But you know, like how I literally do it now is it's like I'm just super regimented in a really uninteresting. It's not a compelling answer, but it's like. I don't go running until Franny leaves for school. She leaves for school at 8.30, I go on my run. I'm home every single day at six o'clock. And I mean that, like all the startup, kick ass, work hard, fucking do more tattoos and all that. Every single day I'm the first one to leave my office. Every single day 26 employees watch me walk out of the office first. Um, and to them, I'm, I, you know, I, I know how I would feel if I saw the, the boss leave first every single day. But, to me, it's, you know, it's, that's, them's the rules. Like, I, I'm home every day at 6 until she goes to bed at 8.30. And then I go to the gym to get super fucking swole. <laughs> no, no problem. My turn now? Yeah, yeah, I think we maybe have to give up on the girl boy thing. It's not really working out so well. No, I can. Great but, question. Uh, I, <laughs> I, um, I was actually inspired by you to start blogging for the company that I work for. And through that, I feel like I've found what I'm actually good at and what I was born to do. And currently, I'm working an eight to five job and then I go home and I've got three kids and a wife and then I'm also editing, you know, late into the night and I have to obviously devote a lot of energy to my kids and to my family because they're very important to me. And there are some days when I just feel like I don't have any more energy to give, but I want success so bad that I continue to push forward. And I listen to podcasts and I watch your vlogs and uh, videos from other people like Gary Vee 
I'm just curious because when I see your videos and I see the schedule that you keep, which dwarfs mine by comparison, are there places that you go to find inspiration and to propel you forward even when you feel like you don't have the energy to keep doing it? Uh, I mean, that's so much information there. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, I, in, in a non-dismissive way, it's hard. And it's preventatively hard. And I always say, like, this is what I used to tell myself when I was really struggling, was that, like, the only way, the only way to guarantee success is to never give up, because then you'll either have died trying, which means you never gave up, or you'll find success. And those are the only two outcomes. I'm totally fine. I was totally fine then with both of those outcomes. Never giving up means, it means having found a degree of success, and then succeeding is, is literally what you're chasing down in the first place. So, you know, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I can tell you that, like, the thing that I prioritize over, um, over anything when it comes to my career is, like, the reason why I'm obsessed about things like running is because it's time for me to just really get in my head. I have friends who don't run and they meditate and they cherish that time. So, you know, I, I think that like, yeah, there's some answers like meditating or, or Tai Chi or running a zillion miles or whatever it might be that help your brain get in order. But I think the other thing is it's like, you know, it's, it's this hard for a reason. Like it's, it's I, I house sat when I was 21 years old because I didn't have a place to live in New York City. So I house sat for this woman and she was out of town and I ran out of cat food and the choice was to feed her cats which is what I was being hired to do or eat myself and the cats lost a lot of weight <laughs> it was hard it was hard like fucking terrorists blew up my apartment and my dad called me and said it's time to come home you don't have a job or a place to live it's hard and I think that you and I both have it easy you have like an expensive cell phone in your hand, you've got three kids that I hope are in school and are doing well, like we are the lucky ones. So if there's ever any doubt about how easy you have, how easy your version of heart is or how easy my version of heart is, think about what it means to be a woman who's born in South Sudan. Think about what it means to, to wake up in Aleppo this morning. Like we have it easy. So I, I, when I struggle, I sort of look at an amalgam of all of those somewhat, you know, rhetorical, hyperbolic things that I think are really um, cast a shadow on my version of a struggle. And I realize that my struggles are meaningless um, compared to your struggle. Like what? I have to deal with like a fighting with my wife and dealing with the bullshit of bills and stuff? Like that's nothing. You would trade that and I would, you would trade that in a heartbeat for, for the struggles that you've had. So context is important, but um, no, it's just hard. It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But I wish you the best of luck. Of course. What's up? I can see my name is Peter, and God, my heart is beating so fast right now. Deep breaths, Peter. Deep <laughs> breaths. I honestly came here to get some inspiration from you, and it is really an honor to see you right here, right now, here in Birmingham, Alabama. And I wanted to ask you a question Life, such as your entrepreneurship with your company team and your family life. 
Um, yeah, I think you know, like the idea of creating a video every day is obviously super interruptive in the other aspects of your life. But you know, I was I think I was irresponsible with it when I first got started, and then you find kind of a cadence, and you figure out how to make it work. But uh, again, I think if it's a passion and not a job, it's something that's omnipresent in your life, and you have to be responsible in negotiating where and how it interacts with everybody else, uh, everything else rather that you do. But you're young, man. You ain't got no excuses. How many kids you got? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, people are dropping like flies. We're gonna do two more questions, and I'm sorry, she's next. Is this literally your question? No, I have. Okay, please. Okay, go. Um, well, since you have to have You've got like one second, and then you're losing the microphone, lady. <laughs> Tiki, you're overshadowing me everywhere I go. Uh, but your video um, really spoke to me. I am an independent marketing strategist, and I beat my head against the wall trying to tell CEOs and clients how important people are. And that that money that you're spending on marketing can go somewhere else. So when you showed that video, that was what's inside of me, and I was floored. And so I was like, I need to come down here and talk to this guy. Um, so, my question is, how do you get people of importance, CEOs, to listen to you and understand that that money needs to go here and what you're doing is more impactful than spending $5,000 on Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not so idealistic about it. Not to, not to call you idealistic, but I think that like, it's very easy to look at Coca-Cola's annual marketing budget of, call it a billion dollars, and say you could solve hunger in four countries instead of buying fucking TV commercials to sell carbonated sugar water. But the reality is like they're, they're, they're trying to build a business. And the reality of that video, and that's, that's like one of the few times I've ever worked in advertising to promote a commercial entity where I lost money. Like I spent thousands of dollars of my own money to make that commercial. And at the end of that, people did benefit. Like those, those people that we were able to feed in, in the Philippines, their lives were impacted in a positive way and I'm very proud of that. But that, that video also sold movie tickets. Mm -hmm. It did its job. That was marketing that was effective. That was marketing that, that brought people to the theater and, and did good things for the margin of Paramount or 20th Century Fox or whoever the hell it paid. Yeah, of course. Everybody's looking for the ROI. I, you know, I wrote a Medium post and it's called, uh, the clickbait title is awesome. It's called, How to Travel the World and Get Companies to Pay for It. And then the first line of it is like, nobody gives a shit about your vacation and nobody ever will and they'll never sponsor your vacation because sponsorships are like unicorns and leprechauns, they don't exist. Show ROI, show that it's a smart investment, show that you will impact their bottom line, this is business. So I think if, if you want to sort of conflate those two ideas of altruism and marketing, then both have to benefit. And if, there's not a, if they're not mutually beneficial, if you just want to take money from, from a client and give it away to people who need it, you failed. And if you just want to take that money and spend it on stupid things like clicks that mean nothing and have no actual returns except for, you know, they look at in a spreadsheet which maybe gets you promoted, like, then you've also failed. And I think the, the sweet spot is somewhere in between, but to be, be naive to either one of those sides I think is a, is a non-starter. Thank you. You're welcome. I never said hi to her Snapchat. Okay, I'm sorry. What? How many questions did I say? One? 
That was, that was a good question, by the way. What was her name? That was a good question, by the way. I appreciate that question. I just want you to know that. I owe you Snapchat. Go. Okay, so my name is Sammy. Um, okay, I'm really glad. That Sammy, we gotta really make this quick because you're eating up people's time here. It's lovely to meet you. Go. All right. I'm really glad that you mentioned Aleppo because I'm a, I'm a Syrian myself. Okay. I'm, I'm from Aleppo. My family is from Aleppo. I was born here. I used to live there every now and then. Anyways, uh, I'm, like, a big portion of my identity is being Arab. And in this world, Arabs aren't viewed sort of the same as, as other people. And being a Syrian, it's, it's almost as if, I mean, not me per se, but the people who are refugees, it seems as if people don't care. And I know you've done so much humanitarian work. I've seen the Philippine video way, like, way before like, when it actually came out because I was a subscriber like four, three, four years ago. Um, anyways, uh, how do you get in contact with like, how do you make those connections? And if for somebody like me who's... What connections? I don't understand what you're asking. With the people who get stuff done, you know? You ask that certain question, but you have a, a fan following. And for someone who has a deep passion for humanitarian work, because I am saying it's sort of difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it is difficult. I think, like, uh, you have to have a message that people are willing to hear. I think a good example of this is PETA. Um, I'm not necessarily a supporter and I'm, I'm not necessarily against PETA, but I think it's interesting is for years, PETA used to put out those really like impossible to watch, like terrible animal torture videos that were just like, get this away from me, this is disgusting. And then they started taking like vegan supermodels and actresses and like putting them on billboards naked with a campaign that said, I'd rather wear nothing than wear animal fur. And I liked seeing that because those, those <laughs> people have beautiful bodies and that's nice and it makes me smile. It's like, that's kind of charming. And all of a sudden now, I'm consuming and I'm identifying with the message of a company that, of an organization that I once, uh, that I once dismissed. So when it comes to bringing attention to things that are otherwise very difficult to bring attention to, I think it's in the eye of the, uh, of the messenger to find a way to communicate it that makes sense. And I think that this can be done both negatively and positively. I think that sort of the, um, the, the growth, which is how I described of xenophobia in this country, has been because bad actors have effectively promoted xenophobia in this country by you know, promoting ideas that like the biggest fear we have in this country is, is terrorism, when objectively it, it's just not as big of a fear as, or as big of a concern as getting into a car accident. Um, I think they've done a good job of marketing what I think is a terrible message. So uh, when you think how could you possibly kind of propagate the alternative, I think you have to find a way to message that that makes sense. When that Philippines thing took place, like the world knew that a horrible, horrible, horrible typhoon had just hit the Philippines. But there was something about that way it was communicated in that video that, that you know, motivated five million people to watch it. And then a lot of people followed that video to nonprofits where they could then participate in helping the people affected by the atrocities. Um, so again, I, I think it's, it's, it's a lot of responsibility on the messenger. And it's the power of, of positive messaging. And it's the power of, of marketing or propaganda or however you want to characterize it. But if, if you can't tell me something uh, in a way that I'm willing to listen, then I'm not going to hear it at all. Is that is that good? That's perfect. Okay, I'm going to answer whatever your question is in like seven words, no matter how complicated it is. Go. 
I have a story. Please. Oh boy, here we not, go. Not, 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 not. Okay, go. Uh, so first of all, I did see your show, and I loved your show. Thanks. Uh, and your brother's awesome work too. Um, so you do a lot of speaking about like your success and chasing success, etc. Um, myself, working in the influencer space, very much driven by your videos, but not necessarily you specifically, but the people you work with, like Oscar and now Jade. You gotta get to your question faster. <laughs> what words do you have from the people that don't necessarily chase success inherently through their own success, but working with others and pushing them to success? I think success is how whatever sort of gives you a sense of uh, accomplishment and completion in life. And the example I always point to um, is like my very, very, very best friend in, in high school who he and I shared huge ambitions in life and right now he lives what I would characterize as like a very kind of normal life. He's got a, a wife and a kids and he lives in a small house and he's a very, very happy person. And his happiness and satisfaction and success in life is derived from things that, that um, I, I, much of mine I identify with my career and his is, has to do with something else. So if working with others, enabling others, being enabled by others is, is, is what gives you a sense of satisfaction in life, then that is exactly what you should be pursuing. Um, and nothing else. I would always be suspect of other people's definitions of success, including mine. Quickest question. This better be fast. We what already you, talked outside. What do you got your money on? Floyd or Connor? Okay, Connor. first of all. <laughs> Please say Connor. First of all, I got tickets to the fight. No, you didn't. <laughs> floor seats. No! Um, I'm bringing Jesse. I told Candace, I swear to you, I thought she was going to divorce me. <laughs> say Connor. Okay, I will be putting money, and I'm not a gambler, but I will be putting money on McGregor. I don't think he stands a chance. Here's the thing, like I'm a fighter, I've been fighting my whole life. I've boxed for like 10 years. All that matters here is Mayweather's defense. Because it, uh, McGregor's gonna gas himself out because he's looking for that heroic knockout, which is what he should be looking for, because even the chance, the only chance he's got is like a, to land a haymaker, a hail maker, uh, a hail mary that knocks him out. But there's no way you're not going to hit Mayweather. He's just going to dance. It's going to be a boring fight after the first round and a half. Here's the thing. When you train, so I, I train kickboxing, Krav Maga. When you learn to fight and you fight with your feet and like you've got all these forms of defense and offense, you don't think just with your hands. It's very different. And I don't think McGregor's going to be able to turn that off. And that's all Mayweather knows. Mayweather's all up here. There's no way he's going to be able to resist. McGregor's going to be able to resist. Like, and that's where his brain's going to be. I don't think he's going to be able to turn that off. So I, I want him to win because he's the best trash talker we've ever seen. And when it comes to boxing, all I care about is the theatrics, not the barbarianism of it. But I, I just... No. I think Floyd is going to wake up. I think he's going to take off his robe, he's going to wake up, he's going to walk out and they're going to ring the bell and he's just going to go like this for like nine rounds and he's going to look at the judges and he's going to go like this and he's like going to go to the bank and be like, deposit this and he's going to be like, can you, can you cover the outside of my Rolls Royce in mink this time? That's what I think is going to happen. Best question of the day. Okay. Hey, what are you doing if he knocks him out? You're live. What do you do? What do I, if he knocks him out? remember my face when it happens. I will remember your face when it happens. Yeah. What are the odds? Do you know what the odds are? Uh, six to one for Connor. The money you'll get back in a few Good. I'm going to put like, I'm going to put like at least 15 bucks on. I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> I'm going to go crazy.
Last question, because you are a young man and I hope to impact you in a positive way. I also hope it's about the McGregor-Mayweather fight. Go. I'm Justin, I'm 14, and my question is, did you ever get any offers besides CNN? And if so, why did you take CNN? Sure, good question, smart question. If I had known you were going to ask me that, I would have just walked out the stage before you. <laughs> um, we had a number of offers from, in, including more lucrative offers, potentially more lucrative offers from much more typical technology companies, the kind of tech acquisitions that you would expect. They weren't exciting for me because it was a lot more of the same. And I think like I was, I had a fatigue with the vlog and a fatigue with YouTube. I do now. I'm kind of getting a little bit sick of sort of what YouTube is and what it's capable of. And I want to reinvent that. And I'm excited about different opportunities. I'm excited about like what YouTube Red might be doing. I'm excited about different directions it might go in. But I want a different direction. I wanted a different direction. So the idea of, guys, we're still talking here. <laughs> so the idea of partnering with like a gigantic media company with resources that are vast meant that like, here's an opportunity not only to sort of promote what I'm doing in the technology space, but really like seek out new paths and new trajectories within the media space on YouTube. And it was an early conversation I had with, with CNN, with Turner, which was just that like, like, we could do interesting things together, but I'm not interested in going on CNN. Like, I literally don't know a person who watches CNN besides my dad, and like none of my audience watches CNN. Like, it's not a place for it. It's not, I, don't, I don't fit there. I don't, I also don't know what the hell they're talking about most of the time on any broadcast news. Like, that's not a fit for me. I'm not interested in that. But if you're interested in building something that we can do on YouTube and on the internet and to an audience like the audience I know to communicate with and you just let us do it our way, then this could be something fruitful. And CNN was genuinely enthusiastic about just that. And we're eight months into the acquisition. I have to say, like, they've been unbelievably supportive in letting us do whatever it is we want to do. And they've been completely hands off everywhere except for when we say we need help. Um, which is crazy. Like we're, there's this thing that news companies have, like CNN has, where it's every feed from cameras that they have all over the world. So all their affiliate, like local news stations, they're like filming live from helicopters and they have like a camera set up on tripods in the middle of Afghanistan's and wars. They have thousands of these in case they need to go to a live feed. They're just always at the ready. But they're never being used. And we learned that because we were literally getting like a fifth grade tour of CNN and they're like, here's where we have all of our live feeds. And I was like, can I have a question? Those are all live? And they're like, yes. And I was like, can we have all those? And they were like, sure. <laughs> so like literally we have access to like all of these feeds that are going completely unused. And right now we're building like a product. We're building a mobile app that will let like any of you access all of these feeds in a way that provides content. It's like, I want that. Like I wish that that existed right now. Instead of wishing it exists, we're going to make it. We're only able to make it because of the resources they're bringing to the table. And that's like one little taste of all of the opportunities that this acquisition brought. And when I, when I really considered the other opportunities that we were looking at, none of them were, were so exciting and none of them were with such a, an open-minded partner. How did a 14-year-old ask me a question like that? Kids going far. Thank you. And I thank you, everybody, for being generous with your time. Thanks for coming out. Thank you for having me. Please see you next time. And that was the person. You've been missing all that. You've been missing.